Ladies and gentlemen, make way for your four hosts. There's Ross, a man so passionate that he could turn any airline feud into a full-blown Kardashian drama. Then there's Christos, the only one of our four hosts who actually knows anything about flying a plane. Then there's Tom, a man so loud that he can still be heard over the roar of a GE90 engine. And finally, the man with the news, and the only one who talks any sense, there's Nick. This is the Radio Runway Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Radio Runway Podcast, coming at you from our studio right here in Melbourne, Australia. You're joining us here on episode four, and want to say a big thank you to everyone for coming this far, listening to our very first three episodes. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to us and even learned a little bit about the wonderful world we call commercial aviation. Now today is a very special episode because we have in our midst our very first special guest. He's currently lucky enough to call a cockpit of a 737 his office and we are lucky enough to be able to get him into our studio here today. Please welcome Mitch Hutchison. Good to have you here, mate. Thanks for having me. We need a crowd cheering sound bite. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That sounds official. That's very nice. No, thanks, guys. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Yeah. And how are we all going, fellas? It's been a long two weeks without the podcast, I've got to say. Very excited to be back. Can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be weird this week not being, as, uh, not being near a microphone. Christos getting the, the full limelight. No, no, my no, girlfriend no. will be my, my fiance will be happy with that Because she seems to think That I hug the limelight too much So <laughs> Sharing is caring Your girlfriend or your fiance yeah, fi- yeah. Fiance Ooh oh, I'm going to get used to that oh. one now. So obviously We have Mitch in the studio With us today He is a 737 first officer uh, Today's black box segment Is about a fear of flying Which is why We have an airline pilot Here with us today We can discuss that But before we get started On our black box segment I've got some intro questions. Well, we have some intro questions to ask for you, Mitch. Yep. Number one, uh, tell us what got you into aviation and the steps you <coughs> took to become that 737 first officer. Oh, well, um, I guess for me, I guess well, I guess kind of like more like most airline pilots, I think um, it comes from a very young age. I think a lot of, it takes a lot of dedication and motivation to get there and a lot of passion and interest. So for me, it started when I was about five or six, doing my first international trip with my family, mm-hmm. uh, we flew on an old Corner Seven Four Seven, um, and I just knew that that was where I wanted to spend all my time. Um, I wanted to fly fly these types of airplanes. Yeah. So growing up through school, I had a focus looking looking at flight schools and looking to what looking to go flying. And then finished school, went to uh, university college at uh, Swinburne. Yep. And then um, yeah, I was a student there for a couple of years, and then I became an instructor at uh, Moorabbin Airport for two or three years. And then um, after I built up some hours, I then finally got into my first airline job with Cathay, um, Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong. Yep. Was there for a couple of years and then came home, flew uh, about two years in private aviation for a private operator, some um, yep. an old like CJ, Cessna, Cessna Citation Jet. And then uh, from there got, got into where I am now, flying 737. It's been good. Fantastic, man. And throughout your career so far, what is your most memorable flight experience? Oh, there's a few. I think it spans. Oh, look, like, I'd, I'd have good. to say one of my most memorable experiences sending my first student solo. For me, doing the solo check and then sending this person out on a solo experience was one of my highlights of my of, of my career. I think um, awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like, it's a pretty cool experience to see like someone that you've trained 
for you know 10 15 hours go and do their first flight and they're going to remember that flight for the rest of their life like every pilot will remember their first flight so now to me that was um that's right up there and i think from an airline perspective i can't really think of anything too specific obviously flying at jfk my first time and flying to lax my first time they stand out what's the best airport you've ever landed at oh Best airport? Oh, Moorabbin Airport. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like always Marabin? number one. It's always number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't get past it. I guess they say if you can fly in and out of Moorabbin, you can fly anywhere. Yeah, it's a pretty challenging airport, especially the traffic density down there. But no, look, uh, Moorabbin Airport's home for me. Um, done a lot of hours flying around the circuit down there. Yeah. And um, both the one seven three three five thresholds are always are always uh, very prominent in my in my in my mind. Like uh, the image is imprinted in my brain. Can I ask actually? Yeah. You're, when you're flying in and out of Moorabbin, mm. obviously they use it as a grounds for some ATC training. Ah, uh, okay. Yep. Have you ever experienced some interesting AC, ATC training interactions or ATC interactions at YMMB? Oh, interesting question. I don't think I've ever seen them really have an issue. I've always seen the pilot perspective break down. So the situational awareness break down and then that causes a airborne conflict. Normally air traffic controllers... I mean, I'm not one myself. I don't work for air services, but I've heard them get a little frustrated on the radio when two, like an aeroplane can't see another one. So that causes a conflict, and I can imagine as a controller, your heart rate would go through the roof, particularly at Rabin Airport, and on a good weather day too, like clear skies, light winds. That's whenever all the VFR flights are out, all the visual flight mm. rules are out. Yeah, right. Um, and that, causes, that, that can cause some issues for sure. Yeah. Mm. I'd imagine... That it would actually be more of a challenge, and the, probably the best learning environment for ATC guys down in Rabin, having yeah. those challenges, having aircraft that can't see each other like that. Yeah. I think Chris has said before he's been yelled at and congratulated by ATC at Rabin yeah. Airport, so we just got to figure out if he, which one he, which one he was. Yeah, I've <laughs> been funny, both. Yes, yeah, so unfortunately, because it is, as Mitch says, very dense. A lot of VFI aircraft out. The one time I was yelled at was. In my initial training, I accidentally cut someone off. They made their frequency call, and then I jumped in line. My instructor was like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Someone else was making a call. And then the ATC controller came back. They said to the other aircraft, uh, I think it was I was in Echo Oscar Tango, someone just rudely cut you off. <laughs> and then I reported back, and I said, sorry about that, requesting um, clearance to taxi to parking. I said, Echo Oscar Tango, cleared, cleared a parking. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, and it's a really challenging environment because a lot of the traffic down there are students learning. Mm-hmm. So they're obviously not, you know, the professional sort of operators. So you're obviously learning the skill. So it, and that takes time. There's a bit of bandwidth that's taken up in the student's mind to, to learn all that stuff. But yeah, you definitely get treated like if you say you want to become a commercial pilot, even your instructors in your fly school treat you like a commercial pilot. I feel like they expect you to. Oh, be, yeah, there's expectations yeah. of professionalism there for sure. But. Um, yeah, Moorabbin's a nightmare. But again, every city, capital city that has an airport like Moorabbin, um, they're all unique Class D procedures, so they're all geographic-based. So if you inbound and outbound procedures are all geographic-based as opposed to um, tracks and distances. So, yep. yeah, so if you're coming in and out of Moorabbin, like coming inbound, for example, you've got GMH, you've got Caram, Bay West, Shoal, Brighton. Academy. Yeah, and they'll always get you to report somewhere. So if you're coming GMH, yeah, so take a flight towards Sandown. And if a flight, yeah, exactly. And if a flight's coming from interstate, interstate pilots who aren't familiar with those procedures, aren't familiar with those areas, that yeah. can cause even more issues. Yeah, no, I guess the only question I'd have is yeah. um, you're obviously type road on the 737. Yes. Yep. 
And every aircraft is a complex piece of machinery. The 737, no exception to that. But is there a, a an element of the 737 mm. that you like that you've experienced or you come across that just seems redundant or seems useless or that you've never yeah. really had a use for out? The, and I'm not including obviously when something goes wrong. I mean something that you are required to use as part of your checklist or whatever it is. Um, yep. That just seems ridiculous. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I've flown other Boeings as well, the triple seven and the seven eight, and across all the Boeing aeroplanes, there's a lot of commonalities. The the the, D, the Boeing DNA is across all those types of airframes, um, and the seven three is no exception. However, it is an older airframe, so it's originally was certified. I think sometimes back in the fifties or sixties, and the hangover in the modern 737s is still there, like all the design features. Even in the cockpit on the overhead panel, there is still, in some panels, there are cutouts of where the di- the old dials would sit. Yeah, so every sp- unique, specific feature of the overhead panel and everything down below you has been the same for 40, 50 years. I want to note that because on my favourite 737 of all time, ZK slash Papa Alpha Tango, shout out, it's, it's, it's operated by Airwork. Uh, well, not anymore. It's been grounded since October. Well, that's right. <laughs> it, it, it was operated by Airwork Australia, which is a freight forwarding company. They, this aircraft is so... Well, it's, it's theoretically airworthy, right? But it's so dodgy and so old. I mean, it's clearly... It's still got the eyelet windows, obviously. Yeah. Like oh, cool. Windows. Yeah, like classic yeah, eyebrows. That's yeah. right. That's right. But it... it like the entire fleet of pilots, there's not a single pilot that like they boycott the aircraft. They don't. They don't fly it. Every pilot in yeah. the whole airwork that's contracted, they they've just I guess come well, to the to the agreement that they yeah, will not fly it. And that's purely the captain's right. I yeah, mean, the, right. The, the captain has the sole authority to take the airplane flying or not, whether the company wants them to do it or not. It's yeah. up, it's, it's safety related. And if the captain's not happy to take command of it. Then they're not happy to. And you know what? When it, when it was when it started to become an issue that pilots <laughs> wouldn't fly with it, when I worked at a cargo company, mm. Airside, mm. Um, we frequently would be able to tell whether or not we'd actually have that extra flight from Auckland to Melbourne running because if wow. it was on PAT, wasn't oh, run. No worries, a bit of an easy night, boys. I got nothing coming in from yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. tonight. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, very interesting stuff, but. Mm. Yeah, so it's just the old the old ca- um, cockpit layout means yeah. that there's a lot of redundant features. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, let me interrupt you guys there because we have a sponsor. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, listening at home and to the fellas on the panel right now, I would love to tell you about our good friends at Collectors Aircraft Models Australia, established in 1996 as an exclusively aircraft model retailer. Since those early days, they have grown to be the largest outlet in die-cast, wooden-carved and push-fit markets covering both commercial, military, sport and general aviation in all leading scales. They source their stock from leading manufacturers from both within Australia and the world over, regularly receiving updates from manufacturers and suppliers as to what's new and being developed. Boys, we all on this panel are regular customers of mm. Collectors Aircraft Model Australia. Yeah, they're the reason why I have no money. They, gen- <laughs> yeah. seriously. So they- the reason we're all broke. Oh, yeah. that's right. I'm looking at... I'm looking at the website. It yeah. looks pretty impressive. It is. Um, uh, so it's run by uh, two gentlemen. 
one who's a seasoned professional in um, aviation photography and also very knowledgeable when it comes to aircraft models, and another one who is at the core of the business, keeps it operating, and sources the most incredible, genuine product that you can get your hands on. And everything is die cast. The detail is incredible. The only source from manufacturers that use molds that have that incredible detail. And thank you, Collectors Aircraft Models Australia, for getting behind the podcast. Everyone else out there, you need to go to Braybrook in Victoria, in Melbourne. The the stock is incredible. The prices are incredible, and you will not regret it if you're an aviation fan. You couldn't have put that any better, Tom. Yeah, you couldn't have put that any better. Now, before we get into the black box segment this week. We forgot to do the housekeeping, so we'll go through the housekeeping right now. This week on Radio Runway. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Ross and Tom both celebrated their birthdays. Ross is still clinging to his early 20s, while Tom might want to consider writing a will just in case. Take some advice, Pilgrim. Don't have Spotify? Well, that's okay, because now you can listen to Radio Runway from wherever you get your podcasts from. Listening from Apple Podcasts? Not a problem. Amazon Music? You bet. Although, if you are trying to use a HFI radio, it might be time to rethink your life choices. Sorry, Christos. Do you like free stuff? Well, look no further than Radio Runway's Instagram, where we post weekly quizzes and facts about all things aviation. It's also the very place where we'll launch any and all future giveaways. So head on over, tap the follow button, and stay tuned. Go ahead, make my day. By the end of this episode, you're probably going to ask yourself, wait, did nothing happen in aviation this week? Well, don't worry, friend. We haven't forgotten the news. We've just relocated it. When you finish the episode, check your Radio Runway podcast feed to see a separate segment just for the news. This is how we're going to keep you informed in the future with fortnightly Radio Runway news blasts. Wow, wow, is a very nice. That's the fortnightly wrap-up. Now back to the episode. <laughs> now, was that your handsome voice? It certainly was. Oh, well done. Thank you. Really? I do feel handsome listening to that. <laughs> yeah, you've, uh, you've wrapped it up very nicely, mate. You've Thank wrapped it up very nicely in the soundbite this week. So let's get into the black box segment. As we said, it was about a fear of flying. Now, black box. Yes, there we Tom. go. There we go. We want to talk about an anxiety today that millions of travelers unfortunately suffer from. It is called aviophobia or otherwise known as a fear of flying. According to 2022 data, up to 40% of the travelling population had some form of fear when it came to flying, while 5% of that population said they would avoid flying at all costs because of their anxiety. Now, here at the Radio Runway podcast, we believe that flying shouldn't be a frightening experience. I guess today our aim is to inspire confidence in our nervous flyers out there, reassuring them that flying is indeed a very safe form of travel. And that you shouldn't have to put off your dream holiday or the opportunity to visit your friends and family because you're worried that air travel is dangerous. So today we want to dissect what it is that makes a person afraid of flying. Whether it's a fear of lack of control, fear of death, or even a fear of turbulence. We're going to look at all these factors today. We've got Mitch here to run through a lot of the uh, training that he's required to do as a pilot and the certain things he'll do before taking off on a flight to ensure that you as a passenger are safe on board. At the end of the segment, we're going to give you a few tips that can hopefully... Uh, make your next flight a bit more of an enjoyable one. So let's start off by talking about turbulence, Mitch. Mm -hmm. So question one, tell us a little bit about turbulence, why it occurs, what types there are, and sort of how you deal with it. Well, I guess turbulence is, I mean, it's quite broad. It's a broad topic. I guess passengers in the back, they don't really know what type of turbulence or what's causing the turbulence. Yeah, They just feel the bumps, whether it's light or moderate or even heavy. Mm Mm-hmm. But I guess there's there's different down low towards the air, like anything below ten thousand, fifteen thousand. There's lots of reasons why turbulence might might be around. 
Um, most often, it's associated with clouds. Yep. So if we fly into clouds, there's generally some build-up or there's, there's some type of vertical or horizontal movement that's creating that. Um, so if we fly through some clouds, we can expect some bumps. Yep. So if we can see that and we're about to fly into it, then we obviously put the signs on, um, do a quick cabin PA, make sure everyone's seated with the seatbelts fastened before we fly into it. Yep. Outside of clouds, down low, it could be wake turbulence from an aeroplane in front of us. Yep. Um, it could be uh, mechanical from buildings or metropolitan areas. There could be a lot of geographical turbulence, like from side hills or, or graphic uplift. Yeah. There could be thermals. I guess, yeah, so it all, it, all, it all varies. Even mountain waves, probably the biggest threat is mountain waves. Not so much prevalent in Australia, but particularly in New Zealand. Um, Queenstown and Wellington, those types of setups, um, you can get some pretty serious mountain wave turbulence down there. That's obviously the biggest risk to aviation, really. That 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 type of turbulence. Can I ask? Yeah. What what actually is a mountain wave? I have no idea what a mountain wave is. Well, <coughs> mountain wave is just when there's like <coughs> above the hill, you get a lot of wind. But when you, when that wind starts to descend into the side of a hill, the lee side of the mountain is going to have a bit of a vacuum. Mm. So you get these mechanical sort of, I guess, vortex horizontal across the top of the, the hill, but it can even, it can be as high as the hill. But generally, I think, I think they say it's anything above 15 knots and at a perpendicular to the ridge line, you can get mountain, mountain waves. And, and it's pretty severe because it typically, it follows down, so it can suck the aeroplane. It, it just sort of does these types of... Like rotor. a rotor. It's like a rotor type setup, yeah. And yeah. Mitch can confirm this for me, but a good, uh, a good way to do be able to identify if you're potentially going to be accompanying or heading into a mountain wave is by identifying if there's a lin- what's called a lenticular cloud on top of the mountain. Mm. Once you start seeing those clouds form, that's when you know, all right, there's going to be some form of uh, mountain wave turbulence yeah. and you want to try to avoid that at your best cost. And it's a big killer for VFR pilots as well. If there is cloud around, yeah. absolutely. <coughs> yep. Can I ask, yeah. again, I'm really done with this stuff. Venticular cloud. Like we're talking, they look more like the... Like the is that cumulonimbus type clouds, clouds? like fluffy or <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong? I think I know. Is it the one that looks like a sheet of paper on top of a hill or on top of a mountain? Yeah, yeah, it's really like it's thin, like a sheet. Whereas what Tom mentioned, a cumulonimbus, which is actually just commonly known as a thunderstorm cloud. So usually mm. they'll start to develop really low at a lower altitude, and then these updrafts will start to carry it up to mm. like a medium stage and to like a high stage and in more advanced aircraft like what Mitch flies, pilots can identify where those CB clouds are. And it's really interesting, those clouds can be within other clouds, so it's not necessarily just a big thunderstorm coming at you. That CB cloud can be within another cloud, which is why it's important to be able to identify these on radar. Okay. Mm. Sorry, that is actually crazy. So you're telling me that a, Q, like a, a CB cloud yeah. can wear another cloud as a disguise, essentially? Oh, that's what I've found in my uh, CPL meteorology classes, Mitch can confirm it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it can happen. It's pretty rare. It, it's, I don't think it's very common to this part of the world, but, I mean, we get a lot of cold fronts come through, particularly down here in Victoria. So we get frontal turbulence. That can be pretty pretty severe. But most often, when you're, like, low level, most people would probably expect a few bumps. Mm. Up in the cruise when, you know, you've just come from 20 minutes of smooth air and people are relaxed and the seatbelt sort of relaxed, still done up but relaxed, you don't, you don't anticipate it. So for us up in the front, we are trying to anticipate it. And obviously with clear air turbulence or cat turbulence, we can't see it. 
So we have to rely on aeroplanes in front of us reporting it. Yeah, so yeah, so it's a it's a we keep a listening watch on the radio. All the so time. what you're telling me is mm. that it's a real it's a similar system to on Victoria Roads, whereby if there's a speed trap, <laughs> mate, you're telling everyone going past, you flash, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Flash, flash the high beam, yeah, that's yeah. exactly the same, yeah. but with turbulence with pilots. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly the same thing. And from your point of view as mm. a pilot in the cockpit, what are your instruments telling you? Like, I guess a lot of people. Like you said, they might feel these bumps, they might get really nervous, but is there anything telling you in the cockpit that you're in any form of danger? Or is the plane flying as it should be? Oh, irrespective of turbulence? Respect, so say you've flown into turbulence. Oh, sure, okay. What, yeah. Are the instruments showing that the plane's flying as it should be? Should yeah. passengers be worried? Well, we know we're in turbulence, but we're moving. Yeah. We're, we're, we're bumping around. Yeah. But on the instruments, we can obviously see there's... Fluctuations in airspeed and altitude, just little ones. Little ones. Um, when we we're supposed to report turbulence on on air traffic control, and um, so there is a rating scale, light, moderate, or or heavy. Mm-hmm. Different. There's different criteria for all of them, um, and different operators might have different criteria of how they define it as well. But air traffic control service, air service Australia have their own. Um, so when we find light turbulence or moderate turbulence, we'll just report it. Um, and um, normally it's. It's not just isolated. Normally it can affect multiple flight levels. So if you're on the way up from flight level 300, so 30,000 feet, up to, say, 35,000 feet, and we've climbed through all that to get to 37 and it's smooth, we might just report to air traffic control, hey, look, we just experienced light turbulence on climb yep. from 300 to 35. And then everyone else will be told about that. Because typically once you depart, once you're about 15,000 feet and it's smooth, Generally, we turn the seatbelt sign off and yeah. the cabin crew get to work and um, people start going to the toilet and that type of thing. And um, if we're aware that's coming up, we want to have the seatbelt sign on so we don't have yeah. people walking around the cabin. Mm. Well, I mean, you wouldn't have people going to the toilet in Michael O'Leary's aircraft anyway, would you really? <laughs> no. <As> you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because right you would have taken them all up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. How do you get fewer people queuing to go to the toilet? Charge them <laughs> and I do actually want to mention on that also. Our pilots are probably some of the most experienced pilots in the world. <laughs> that is our good friend. And he features this week noting that uh, Australian pilots, some of the better trained in the world. Well, speaking of pilot trained, it leads me to the, my next question. Uh, so one of the major things we discuss uh, is the passenger's fear of a lack of control. Mm. So what sort of training in your experience do pilots do to ensure the maximum safety of flying? Good question. Um, it all starts on the ground. So it's all about preparation. And I think every flight is different. Every flight you've got to look for the unique threats or the unique challenges. No flight will ever be the same. Um, so it all starts on the ground, starts from engineering. Um, there's a lot of people that go in into making the flight happen. It all starts from flight dispatch, f- flight planning, um, engineering, then there's us and there's the cabin crew, then there's um, air traffic control. They're, all these systems are in place to ensure the highest level of safety, not just not just at the controls with us, but everyone else that's involved. Um, it's a big, giant system. But when we push back off the gate, that's when it's up to us in the front, up in the, up in the cockpit, and we'll always take the conservative approach and we'll assess the risks and if there are risks, we'll identify some strategies to mitigate them um, to get the job done. Now, it's not getting the job done at all costs. 
That's never the case. We're, it's always a dynamic environment and we're always talking and challenging different ideas to get the safest outcome. So, for example, if there's like a – we get the flight plan and there's some weather between here and, say, Brisbane or Sydney or could even be Auckland, wherever, come up with a strategy to deploy mid-route to overcome that risk. So whether it be a thunderstorm or en route turbulence, we'll find a different level. We might fly a few miles around it type of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very dynamic workplace. No flight's ever the same. Which brings us to our third question, Mitch. So could you just go into a little bit more on what, uh, just some of the things you guys do as pilots in the pre-flight to ensure safe flight? Yeah, pre-flight. Well, it's testing systems, getting engineering to sign off on the aeroplane, getting the captain to sign off on the aeroplane. We need to make sure the aeroplane is fit to fly, fit to operate. Yeah, actually on that, mm. do you do many walk-arounds? I do a couple of them, yep. yeah. yeah. Um, normally it's the captain doing them, Yeah, yeah. not so much the FO, but it depends on the team really. Sometimes, mm. sometimes guys will want to switch it up. And yeah, yeah. The captain does the pre-flight. I can do the walk around, or we switch. But we have to do one every every flight. Right. Every flight we do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. the biggest issue is bird strikes. A lot of the time, um, bird strikes can render some issues. Bird strikes can cause issues on the ground. So if we hit one on the on landing, uh, we have to do a walk around, a special inspection for that. But again, like it all, an airplane's an airplane. I mean, you're, you're going to find little nicks and scratches and all types of things, but what we're looking for really is just general condition wear and tear and any unreported um, scratches, dints. Oh, it's a big airplane. So, you know, it can take five, ten minutes to do, do a proper walk around. Yeah. On that also, while I was working at said cargo company mm. at Melbourne Airport. Oh, yep. I think I know where this is going. <laughs> Okay, we had <laughs> we had a three a retrofitted three twenty one parked at one of the hotel bays at um, Melbourne Airport, and one of the one of the freight drivers, the airline freight drivers, he's like driving past one of the bays, and he's like coming out on a curve, and the dolly disconnects from the tug. Oh no! And oh. keeps going as as the tug. As the tug's turning to the left, the dolly keeps going straight, rams into the the rear of the yeah. cowling of yeah. one of the engines, mate. I've never seen so many airside safety vehicles in one spot in Melbourne Airport. Like, it was crazy. Yeah. I feel sorry for the dude, but, like... It's a, it's a big challenge. The apron's a busy, busy space. There's lots of risks. Even when I'm doing a walk around, I mean, it's, it's chaos down there. And somehow it works. Somehow, sometimes it even doesn't work. One thing that I have seen, not, not isolated just with my operator, but more across the industry, is those ground vehicles driving too far into the aeroplane and dinting them and i've seen baggage loaders drive into the side of the hull and put a punch a big hole in the side of the fuse <laughs> yeah what? no there's, there's a few airplanes that have been grounded over the years for that type of that type of stuff but wow yeah it's a big issue and then obviously the operator you know the airline they can't sometimes control the quality of the drivers on the ground so it is a business risk obviously having staff drive vehicles around the airplane that you don't train yourself other, other agencies do that. But having said that, you know, again, it, it happens from time to time. I and mean, particularly aviation on the ground services side, I would imagine it's quite a high turnover environment, lots of yeah. staff coming in and out. Oh, yeah. Well, I was actually going to say also on that, yeah. in terms of third-party operators, there's a story that's infamous amongst the, the Melbourne airport yeah. scene in terms of, you know, which airline uses which con- third-party contractor to do their ground handling, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the, I'm not going to name... The third-party companies. One of them in the story rhymes with Schmissport. 
<laughs> very clever. Right. Very clever. Um, and uh, look, basically, <laughs> basically, the the operator that I was with, our grand handling services had the contract for Singapore Airlines mm. at Melbourne Airport, mm-hmm. and everything was good and grand. We charge a huge amount. We charge a pretty penny for our services in comparison to all other third party operators, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and that's because, premium, premium. yeah, 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 right. Mm. Uh, we we provide a premium. A premium product. Well, maybe that's the bias coming out, but genuinely, mm. when you, when you hear the rest of the story, you'll believe it, because we we had the Singapore Airlines contract. Singapore Airlines were looking to save a pretty penny in Melbourne. You know, obviously having a lot of daily services in and out, so they switched operators and they gave us six months' notice. They switched to the carrier that I mentioned. I wouldn't name, and that carrier served them for three weeks before the first incident which was this a um, stair operator hitting the side of an A350. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. yeah, and and it, it didn't last after that. Six months later, they were back at our front do- at our doorstep saying, yeah, we'll come back, it's fine. We're, we don't need them anymore. Singapore so, Airlines are still with... Yeah, yeah, so the, it's funny about that. The unknown operator. Be- that's right. Yeah. They, this is where said unknown operator contested the grounds of the contract and Singapore Airlines stepped back and went, ah, we don't want it. We don't want a piece of this. We're gonna step back. Just know. look after our aircrafts a bit better, please. And 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 send them on their way. But I mean it's cheap and ultimately I guess cheap enough that even the mistakes that can be fixed aren't costly enough that it makes up for the overhead yeah. that you're saving. You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, there's a little tidbit. Put it back on track with a fear of flying, obviously. <laughs> probably probably not a, tug, not a tugs on, and vehicles on. crashing onto the side of aircraft probably haven't fear. helped our case. Fear of tugs. Fear, yeah. fear of tugs. It's a real thing. It is a real thing. Especially if they're from uh, unknown operator. Unknown operators. Yeah, unknown operator. That's dangerous. <laughs> Moving on to the next question, back to fear of flying. So a lot of the time as passengers mm. on the ground and when we take off or mm. just as we're about to land, mm. we hear noises, we, th- we see things moving in the wings... Yeah. Tell us briefly what these noises and movements in the wings are and, you know, why is there nothing to worry about? So, I don't know, if we take off on mm. an aircraft, we hear the the power of the engine sort of go down. You know, why does that sort of happen, et cetera? Oh, once you're airborne? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, lots of things happen when you depart. So, normally the takeoff is the first time that you've run those engines up to take off power. So, when we when we bring the engines up, you bring them up to about 40%, oh, this is on the 737 at least anyway, Yep. 40% N1, and then once they're established, the power sort of stabilises at 40%, then we push TOGA, and then it goes to the takeoff power. So when the th- engines come up on departure on the runway, passengers will hear the engines run, stabilise, and then go full power. So it's not a consistent, it doesn't sound like uniform consistency, but what we're trying to do is make sure that both engines run up together at the same time at the same speed to ensure that we don't get any asymmetric uh, yep. power uh, anomalies. On the, yeah. on the, but once we're airborne, you'll then hear the gear come up. I don't know about the Airbus. The Airbus might make some different noises. But on the 737... There you go. Now, that is common on Airbuses after pushback. Yep. Yeah. Things are coming up to pressure. It's a lo- that's a lovely the, noise. That's the PTU. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Power okay. transfer unit. Oh really? Yeah, when when they get pushed back, they um it's the it's the hydraulics, isn't it? As you were mentioning yeah, yeah, before. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is. There you go. But yeah, now we have well, a whole lot switching of switching from ground power to 
just power engines. from the engine. But Normally, when you're at the gate with the engines off, yep. the engine's not running, you're using power from the APU. Yep. And the hydraulics, I can't speak for the Airbus, but on the 737, your hydraulics will already be pressurised before you push back. Yep. And then once you push back, you start the engines, and then that's when we switch both engines have just started. Mm-hmm. And then we put the power, the power supply for the aeroplane onto the engines and take it off the APU. And then we shut the APU down. Yep. If it's a non-ETOPS flight. If it is an ETOPS flight and the APU is not approved for airborne starting and stopping for ETOPS purposes, then we'll leave it on or off according to the procedures that we have to apply. But yeah, I mean, there's all lot, it's very noisy and busy and lots of things are happening. Like so just to clarify, could you just, although we don't know what it is, some of our viewers might not, could you define what ETOPS is? ETOPS. Well, the ETOPS term has been sort of, I guess, deleted and replaced with EDTO, so Extended Diversion Time Operations. So basically, it's a flight planning exercise, essentially, that the flight has to remain within one hour of a suitable airport. However, if the flight plan goes beyond that, you can still do it up to a maximum, on the 737 case, 180 minutes, um, but you have to comply with certain restrictions on that. There's a whole can of procedures and different things we have to do if it is an airtime flight, but it's very rare. On the 737, it's, we're a domestic operation, so it doesn't, it doesn't really affect us too much. Going to New Zealand, it does, but sort of up to Bali, not too much sometimes maybe. I have had a one flight where I flew Melbourne to Bali, but Alice Springs was closed during the night because they were relaying the runway. So when that airport was no longer available, we had to go ETOPS through the middle of Australia. Yeah, so that oh, can yeah. happen. That, that can happen sometimes, yeah. It's very unusual, but it can happen. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm. Just to go back a bit also. In I fact, actually, I do have a picture. You probably Everyone listening can't see it, but I do have a picture of this tiny little airspace in Queensland that is technically airtops. So basically every airline will have approved airports, so Category A, B or C um, airports that they will use they can use for ETOPS or EDTO planning. Mm. Anyway, this happens to be the case for my operator. So you can see there's that little – it's just near south of Longreach. So that little tiny little brown box. Yeah. Oh, hey. yeah. That's <laughs> when you're in that box, you're more than one hour from an airport. Really? Wow. Yeah. wow. So do you avoid it or – Yeah, so see that flight? We were just north of that box, so we were fine. Yeah, wow. that's crazy. Like literally by a <laughs> smidgen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, so it's for us, it's uh, sixty minutes, which is four hundred miles. Yeah. And how how big was that box? Like at its widest point? Oh, look, you're looking. Oh, yeah. like are, we, are we talking just like a few kilometers? Or oh no, we're probably talking. I reckon you're talking maximum of fifty miles wide. Wow. Yeah, fifty miles wide, forty-five miles wide, something like that. East west, and then north south, probably another. 45, 50. It's almost like a box. There's a lot of stuff in there, but the only noises you should be hearing is on takeoff and landing. Yeah. Yeah, and they're all normal. Right? Yeah. And, and when they're not normal, um, there are procedures that we do apply mm-hmm. to get us back on the ground safely. So, and we are all trained in that, in that, in, in that, in that space. And even with some of the noises that we hear, mm. with those noises we can actually see, see what's happening, for example, flaps. Yeah, if you hear the flaps running, you can see them running. If yep. you're in a window seat. Um, spoils don't make much noise Ailerons don't make much noise Because They're yeah. all cables anyway But um, Yeah I mean it's It's a pretty quiet airplane I just want to mention a story Now this was a couple of years ago Where You were on an A330 Yes Up to Sydney Yep And the 
and the A330 was coming into land. Yes, actually. You were in the same the, seat as me, but on a different aircraft. Yeah, I was. Yes. And the landing gear dropped. Yeah, I was. And you had the fright of your life, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I. You didn't know it was the landing gear. <laughs> I did not know. <laughs> you thought it was an explosion. I, when I oh, wait, so the whole thing literally just dropped out. When yeah, it dropped, yeah, yeah. I have it on video. You can actually even hear it through the phone. It, all you hear is just a big kudunk and... I kind of like you could kind of feel the vibrations. The A330 is a big aircraft. Yeah. So the landing gear dropping on a 330 compared to a 73, it really makes a thud. Like it I, did I, make I can... a thud, and I was wondering, what was that? <laughs> oh, how was it unusual? No, I think it's just because like that was actually my first A330 flight. I was on the same flight as Nick, and even oh. I felt it. I'm like, oh wow. Like, that was that not... your first A330 flight? Wow. My I... first A330 flight was on the deportation incident. Yeah, let's not we bring don't that speak up. about that. Yeah. Oh, hang on. We I, have to now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know about this. You know what? Right? I haven't told it on the podcast yet. I'm, I'm sure she'll be fine with it. So, yeah. Mitch, did you know that I have actually... I have caused my fiancé to be deported from Singapore. This is and detained, fascinating now. Detained for about 36 hours in a detention facility. You were detained for 36 hours? No, no. She was. She was. I was but enjoying the luxury of the hotel in <laughs> You were on the Bintangs? He was <laughs> the one that made the mistake and she and was the one that caught the... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, how did this... Ha- what happened to you? So, during... We, uh, it was during COVID. Obviously, they had the vaccinated travel lane in place. The purpose of the vaccinated travel pass mm-hmm. is to prove that you're vaccinated... Mm-hmm. And you have to apply for a pass every time you want to travel through or into Singapore. You have to mention a range of dates whereby you will enter into Singapore with that valid pass during that period of time. Now, for me, I had chosen, I had written down the period of time that was correct. Now, for my uh, fiance, I had not. The pass that I had chosen for her was actually that I had applied for her and, uh, on her behalf and actually had validated to prove that we, she was fully vaccinated mm-hmm. and was able to fly was for coming back into Singapore because we were going to go into Thailand. Oh, okay. So we rocked up not within the correct date range per her vaccinated travel pass. Now, for me, I just went straight through, turn around, um, and you would think they'd take one look at that document, see that there's validated proof that she has fully vaccinated and legally able to travel through or into Singapore and go, well, there's a clerical error on the date range. That's no problem. We can fix that. I don't know if it's maybe because they wanted to make an example of the the little blonde white girl, but they threw the book at her. They they threw the book at her straight into the detention centre. No access to a phone, no access to a blanket, food, towel to have a shower, sleeping in like a dormitory set up with bunk beds. Was the only one in there because it's during COVID, so the, the detention facility wasn't too packed. It was literally just her. Couldn't sleep during the night because the, one of the immigration guards had to come in and scan a wall outlet to prove that they'd been in the room every 15 minutes, walking wow. in and out. Eventually was allowed access to her laptop and Wi-Fi on there, so I was able to keep in contact with her. I was straight down to the airport the moment I got my COVID test that negative sounds, result. This sounds hectic. That's crazy. Yeah. Got back to Changi Airport. When I got to Changi Airport... I met up with a friend who worked at Changi Airport and I explained to him what's happened and he just went on the warpath, this guy. I've never mm. seen anything like it. We went up to, I think, every SATS employee that day and and eventually he basically said... Because the, they were intending to ha- send her back on the same airline that yeah. she arrived with. We went with Jetstar, JQ7. During COVID, the next JQ8 flight, which is the return flight, 
We arrived on Friday. The next flight was on Wednesday. They wanted to hold her for four and a half, five days in this detention facility, knowing full well that there are five flights a day across multiple airlines from Singapore to Melbourne. And, and they you wanted to hold this girl for five days in this detention facility. And you would have been willing to pay absolutely anything to get her on the earliest flight out, right? Mate, literally. Yeah. Literally. So I, I, this guy, I've never seen anything like it. He marches up to the, SAT, to the SATS manager and he goes, you're holding this girl in detention. You know well that there are five flights a day, including Qantas flight, which is just up being subsidiary of Qantas, yeah? Mm-hmm. That should easily tick all the boxes. And you're going to hold her for five days? I don't think so. You're putting her on that flight. You're putting her on that flight right now. They said, okay, we'll see what we can do. Made a call. Talked on the radio for a little bit and said, okay, we're putting her on QF36. She's, coming, she's going back tonight. In total, she was there. She was in this facility for about 30 hours. I booked straight away on QF36. Cancelled the holiday plans. Refunded everything. Straight back home. I'm at the gate. And I get word from the SATS manager that's been now talking with me throughout the day. Okay, she's leaving the detention facility now. She's mm. been escorted back to the gate. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, like just someone pointing in the right direction. No, 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 no. Two armed guards, one either side of her, walking her down the entire length of the terminal at Changi and then like, relin- like sort of like... Handcuffs? No handcuffs. Oh, Thank you. Could you imagine? Oh, my God. That would, be the, that would be the pièce de résistance, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, wow. So, yeah, and then lots of tears... A very emotional time. Got on the plane, and I, you know, I don't know if it's maybe because it was Qantas, but having Australian voice of the the flight attendant serving us, a very kind, very lovely, very friendly staff. Maybe it's because it left more of an impression on me and her because we were literally on our way back from an awful mm. situation mm. for her more than me. Yeah, but uh, it felt it felt good, and that was gave me an appreciation of Qantas. That was my first time being on A3, A330, which I, I can't believe I did this, but I did remind, I did tell her that when we boarded the plane and she was seated in row 60, seat B, because it's the furthest seat away from the cockpit, so she poses no danger to the flight crew. Really? Whoa. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. procedure, is it, in yeah. Singapore? Yeah. Wow. Did, did you have the window seat? Or? No, she, no, she definitely had the window seat. Yeah, she locked took, in there. Yeah. Lucky. Wow. Anyway, that's that's, crazy. that's the Singapore incident, the deportation incident. Was accommodation nice in detention? <laughs> she wasn't offered a blanket. No. The, so, yeah, no, it wasn't particularly nice. Uh, she wasn't given breakfast or lunch on the, the second day or dinner the previous day. And then she was given um, dinner an hour before she was escorted out to the wow, gate. Wow, that's crazy. She that's wasn't given a towel to have a shower. She, she literally drew, dried herself with a hand towel. Because they wouldn't give her a towel to, to what a single off. hand towel? Yeah, like as in the ones that you have in in out like your personal bathrooms that you like, like yeah, your wash your hands with. Oh, wow. What? Yeah, because they wouldn't give her an a physical towel to mate. This is some current affair stuff. I'm telling you. I'm surprised you didn't take them. Oh well, exactly right now. Seeing how much television channels love to crucify airlines around the world, mm. I I wish I had, but honestly, quite the ordeal. So crazy. Yeah. There you go. Sorry. We can get back on topic now. Sorry. So 3.30, wheels down, right? Then when I landed, no, after Nick landed, I went up to Nick because he was sitting in the same seat as me. I said, Nick, when you were inbound, did you hear a loud thump or a big bang? <laughs> and it was Nick that said, yeah, that was landing gears. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. I'm like, all right then. 
we're all good. I want to apologise. I want to apologise. Our pilots are probably some of the most experienced pilots, pilots in the, the world. world. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on the 330s, man. I flew a lot between here and Hong Kong on Cathay. Yeah. They used to throw the 330s down to... CX, was it 104... 104, 105, you've got 134, 135, and you've one got 163, 178. Yeah. I served all one, of them. 178, 178. Back to fear of flying. So we've yes. spoken now about uh, toga thrust and the noises involved and how it's just, it's just procedural. Everything is part of um, everything is part of takeoff or everything is there for a reason. Um, and none of it, while, especially if you're a first flyer, it might come across as mm. irregular. But well... Yeah, I mean, I guess if you haven't flown before, there's going to be lots of things you haven't experienced. So you don't know when they're normal or not normal. Yeah. But if you, even if you are an experienced flyer, you're going to come across... See, being scared of landing gear dropping isn't so bad after all. No, I mean... <laughs> okay, you know what? You'd want that noise to happen than not at all. That's, yeah, good but point. at the end of the day, everything is as safe as it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Right? The aeroplanes are built to withstand... A huge amount Built of different. yeah, they're just they're just absolute airborne flying tanks. Um, nice, lots of redundant systems. Oh, sorry, uh, redundancy in the systems are built in. Um, like for the, for example, like there's more than one way to get the flaps down. There's more than one yep. way to get the flap the gear down. There's alternate brakes. There's multiple hydraulic systems. Multiple I, electrical systems. Actually, a lot of people don't know this, but if the aircraft again, Mish can confirm. If the aircraft uh, isn't able to extend or lower the landing gear, there's a thing called uh, gravity drop. So where the crew will open the landing gear doors and gravity will literally pull the gear down and lock it into place. Yeah, in GA machines, yeah, yeah, not not so much, not so much. Well, in the airline world, we have a, um, it's particularly in the seven three seven. We've got a um, alternate gear extension. Yeah, we can pull that. And then there's a hand crank. Yeah, hand crank. That's the, that ties in to another great story I have to do with landing gear. My brother was a FIFO electrician in Nolan Boy in mm. regional Northern Territory for two years. During that time, he had one time where he was FIFO for the day going out to a few regional islands to fix some lights, chuck in a few more light bulbs. And anyway, he's, he's, they're on um, approach down into... Well, sorry, they're, they're heading towards the Go Bear Strip. And... The landing gear won't deploy. And the only reason he finds out is because old mate GA pilot who's just there to get his hours up, he, he, he doesn't say anything. He just pulls out the OM and just opens up landing gear. And my, my brother's like, what's going on, bro? Why you got the landing, why you got the landing gear pages in the OM open, bro? Is there anything so I should know? And he's like, um, yeah, I, uh, the landing gear won't deploy. I don't know what's going on. And so my brother's like, uh, this is it. This is it. It's happening. <laughs> but which, which, when he, when he messaged, he messaged that to my dad and me. He messaged that to my mum, my dad, and me. My mum was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Oh my gosh, okay. Look, uh, uh, is there anything I can do to help? My dad and I, oh mate, it's just landing gear. You're fine. <laughs> Literally, how the conversation went down. Anyway, old mate gets the hand crank out. That's how, that's how that relates back to that. Yeah, so uh, the old windy, windy, windy. Sorry, your mum says, is there anything I can do to help? Yeah, mate, you never know. She could get up there in a 172 and try and... <laughs> Intercept. Yeah. <laughs> like a 172 fixed gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a photo of the manual gear extension of 737. So, oh. you got, so you've got the three, the three handles. Yeah. So you pull, you pull each one for each gear. So you pull that one, drops the right, 
nose. Is that, in, is that in the cockpit? Yeah, that's just behind the centre pedestal, yep. right behind. It's most likely the FA will do it because it's more closer to our our, our seat. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's what that's what it is. How many but times have you used that before? None. None. Oh, in the sim, <laughs> I've done the simulator. Oh, you done in the sim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, you have to for yeah, type yeah, A, yeah, right? yeah. But like but in, in on, real life, you've always. But like for example, other like little GA airplanes. Yeah, yeah I mean they they have like the Seminole's got a, the same type of thing where you pull it and the gravity pulls it down. Mm-hmm. The, so I think the Baron. I think from memory, the Baron had a hand crank. Yep. But they're all they're all different. Uh, Mitch, you did uh, mention a little bit about takeoff, which brings us to our next question. You see, a lot of people are really worried or scared during the takeoff and landing phases yeah. of flight. Mm. Just explain how you guys are in control of the aircraft and why there's nothing to worry about during this phase of flight. Um, why there's nothing to worry about? Um, well, I guess for us as pilots, where takeoff and landing are the phases of flight where we are most engaged. So we're highly alert. Um, focused and dialed in. Um, takeoff, we would have briefed it, talked about it, calculated the takeoff power. Um, so we both have the same mental model of what we were going to achieve. So we both were on the same wavelength, the captain and the FO. Um, uh, Tony and landing, where it's more, I guess, individual ability based. Every pilot who flies their airplane can land it. Because yeah. they've, they've been trained and they've been checked out. You know, they're, they're Wouldn't have a licence if you caught it. <laughs> correct, exactly right. So, But in the landing phase, there could be all sorts of little wind gusts or things that might pop up yeah. that you haven't sort of prepared for. But that's just down to the natural ability part of it. That's where you can feel it. Aeroplanes have inertia. I have this belief that the bigger the aeroplane is, the easier it is to fly. Because you've got right. more weight and the weight is good with when you're landing and taking off. It's it's all inertia based. Whereas a seven three seven, it's one of the one of the light aeroplanes, and it's it's more affected by local wind or sort of thermal activity. Yeah, right. Mm. So you're always really manipulating the aeroplane right down to the ground, but you can still you've got nothing to worry about because we've done it thousands of times. Yeah, because I just want to add on to that. I've had a few people ask, mm. even during, say, a cruise or whatever. In fact, whatever the phase of flight may be, in the event you might have to, say, ditch in the water or have mm. to land in a very isolated area, somewhere in the outback, people are worried that it's like all hope is lost. If you go into water, that's it. Like the plane's going to sink straight away. There's <laughs> nothing to save yourself. Even in the outback, isolated areas, there's nothing to look after yourself with. I guess there's some sort of human factors training that comes into it and you guys get taught or what on how to control the situation. Oh, yeah, there's, we have emergency procedures training, which is different to operating the aeroplane. And when we, when we ditch the aeroplane, and when we, or for example, if there's a ditching in the water, there's a whole series of procedures that get triggered. So there are procedures for this oh, situation. Oh, absolutely. Down, yeah, awesome. Right down to the ditch. Even so much so that when the rafts are deployed and all the passengers are in the, are in the rafts, each crew member is supposed to take command of each raft. But before we cut the rafts off and ditch off. We were supposed to grab all the food and the water from the galley and throw it into the raft. You know, all that wow. type of thing. Like that, that thing's discussed and talked about. Cool. And even if there's time, you know, like I think the cabin crew have a procedure where they check all the rows with a torch and make sure everyone's yep. off the aeroplane before we abandon the aeroplane. That's in a prepared ditching but I mean very unlikely event. Oh, of course it's very unlikely. I mean, yeah. well, we've only had one that we can really remember in the Hudson River. Hudson River, there yeah. you go. And as we all know, all passengers were accounted for. 
and safe. But that's such a rare occurrence, but we yeah, still talk about very, it and, and we still train for it every year. Mm. Yeah. Shout out, Zoe. Even in the survival packs, there's always these, uh, these uh, water purification tablets. Um, but they're not, they're not going to give you a big quantity of water. Like they're not going to produce a lot of drinkable water. So if, if you're in a prepared ditching, right, you've got plenty of time while you're airborne to communicate that you're going down, communicate your position. It gives the emergency services plenty of time to sort of get an understanding of where you are. So hopefully once I know where you are, it's not that really long to get you. It's probably, you know, max 48 hours. Mm. I mean, just to add to that as well, when something happens, mm. an airplane isn't just going to fall out of the sky. No, no, no. I mean, when something happens in a situation, you lose two engines on an aircraft. What you have on your hands is a very expensive glider. A very big glider. <laughs> very but it also doesn't glide for very long. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't have that long, but I've never trained that specific scenario, like a glide, engine out glide ratio. I never, never worked that out before, but... That stuff's not trained in the simulator. Mm. Interesting. I thought that would... Well, I guess it's really... Like we said, we've only had one really scenario where we can all think of it. There was another one where it was an A330 over the Atlantic. Uh, Captain's name was Captain Pichet. Oh, that was Air France. There was another A330 where this Mm. is for more of a maintenance issue where the wrong pipe was fit in one of the tanks, snapped off and... They were trying to fuel, they, were, they put the fuel feed to try run fuel to the other engine, but fuel was just constantly leaking because the pipe was broken. And what happened was they lost, lost both engines at cruising altitude and the captain glided the A330 down to a really small island in which they, they managed to land and all passengers were safe. Captain, wow. P- Captain Pichet. I, yeah. I did I not know that one. I haven't heard about that one either. No, I, I was thinking about something completely different. Let's cap it off, the black box segment for this week. Now... Do we all have a few hot tips that we can give to the viewers, to the mm. listeners, should I say, sorry, mm. about how to make your next flight a little bit more enjoyable? Now, let's make it oh, realistic. Easy. Let's not just say jump in J class because oh, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, for me, the obvious standout is some airlines have Wi-Fi and some don't. Yep. But even when the ones that do have Wi-Fi, you got to be – careful that it may not be working so take an ipad download as much netflix as you possibly can or youtube videos mm-hmm. yes and just watch content mm-hmm. on your personal device because sometimes if you if you've got the seat back tv screen that sometimes don't work and when yeah. they do they're horrible yes it had it, when i flew to honolulu it wasn't working on that flight yeah. so you can imagine the disgust from a lot of the passengers oh and it's like a nine-hour flight right so it's 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 quite uncomfortable yeah. Reminds me well, It was a 747 So I was in my element at the time Oh okay Looking out the window for nine hours mm-hmm. Yes yeah, sir I'd say on an aircraft sitting It's probably the most stable Over the wing And in the front You feel the bumps a bit less If you've Correct. got a, a bit of a fear of turbulence actually, So try yeah, to sit yourself Yeah actually going back on that On yeah. the turbulence point mm-hmm. Up the front We don't feel it as bad Yeah Right but So if we're feeling like Say a 2 out of 10 mm-hmm. Down the back It might be a 4 or 5 out of 10 yeah, so it's always it's always got a higher higher movement in the tail of the airplane. Always, so we encourage cabin crew to course. And if they're trying to you know walk around with hot drinks and it's becoming quite uncomfortable, mm-hmm. we'll ask them to just be proactive, call us because we'll put the signs on for them. Yeah, that's that's not an issue for us at all. So we'll we'll just do that. But yeah, the bail, the tail of the airplane, you're always going to do a few extra miles. 
Laterally and vertically. Yeah. That's, that's actually one of my prefer- that's one of my preferences. Why I like sitting at the rear of the plane. I like the little extra, especially when you're on the runway as well. Yeah, but if you're afraid of turbulence, mate, you don't want to be seeing that. And one thing that's always I was afraid of turbulence. Nah, nah. No. Well, it depends on how bad it is. <laughs> I mean, I, the, I, look, my triple seven experience flying over like uh, the Himalayas. That is some serious bumps out there sometimes. Yeah, yeah like going to um, sort of continental Europe from Southeast Asia, you always go through that high terrain area. And boy, do you get some big, big turbulence out there. Have you ever seen Everest? I've seen it. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it's a very interesting part of the world to fly over, the Himalayas. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. At cool. night time, it's better because you don't want to know how close you are. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, when you're indicating 35,000 feet and you look out the window at daytime, it looks like the peaks of those mountains. It looks like they're only 2,000 feet below you. Whoa. <laughs> like they are, cl- like it looks, it, like they're coming right at you. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's, and people climb that. If you're a passenger and you're afraid of turbulence, mm. try book yourself onto a seat that's over the wing or towards the front. That way you yeah. feel less of the bumps. Yeah. Book business class. It's usually in the front. Yeah. <laughs> or first class. Yeah. Or be a pilot. And Become one, Mitch. And one thing that one thing that people all should all do is keep hydrated. Yeah. Yeah. Keep the fluids up. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you want to survive jet lag, water keep, keep is crucial. hydrated. Water is crucial. Oh, very good. Now well, that is the end of our black box saving for this week. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed it. You've enjoyed listening to what Mitch has had to say over here. We're going to move on to this week's game segment. Okay, we've I'm got some tense this. music ready to go here. Bring it on. Bring it on. Let's get ready to rumble! You do nothing. <laughs> Alright boys, let's do this Alright, this week's game is called Crack the Code I'm going to give you a three letter IKO airport code And all you have to do is tell me which city that airport code is in So I'm going to give you a bit of an example If I say MEL, what city is that airport in? Melbourne Melbourne, Melbourne. Oh, Hang on, wait Okay Whoa, 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 we whoa yeah. There's a lot anyway, Melbourne M-E-L Is Tullamarine That's true Not okay. so you, but I'll list out a three letter Airport code Done And you've got to tell me The city that it serves Yep So M-E-L yep. Melbourne yep. Yep. If I say S-Y-D Sydney If I say B-N-E Brisbane. Brisbane. Yeah, I'll assume none of those options. Uh, any of those <laughs> We've already burnt them now. <laughs> yeah, that's the first three questions done. Uh, <laughs> how did Nick get three points already? So yeah, I'm on three that's points. how I won. Do we do we buzz in our names? Yes, use your name as a buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch loves it. <laughs> I'm into this. Here we go. All right, starting off with question one. What is the airport KIX? Ross. Asaka. That's correct. Oh, well one done. One point. Ross is on one point. The rest of you fellas on none. Moving on to the second airport. What is IAD? Tom. Tom? Is it... Oh. Oh. Tom. Oh. No, no, no. Okay, 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 okay. Oh. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
IED. Oh, yeah. Hey, Chris, just get Houston? off flight radar. Yeah, yeah. Get off flight radar. No. <laughs> flight radar. Oh, it's on. Take the iPad. <laughs> what was it? It is not Houston. I, I don't know why. Is it Washington? It's probably Washington. Anyway, continue. What, Dallas or something? Yeah. What is IAD? What airport is IAD? I'm actually having a mental blank. Does anyone know IAD? Christos. I'm going to go off what Tom said. I'm going to say Washington. It is Washington, Dallas. Well so done. I did say it. Thank you very much. I said Dallas before, but no one really He must get a oh, oh, yeah. Oh, no. Did you buzz Dallas. your name? Did you buzz your oh, name? Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, oh, he's oh, had to buzz Oh, okay. Who am I giving I'm that to? I'm still taking full credit for that. All right, we'll give it to Chris Dust because I reckon, I reckon Mitchell claw it back with this next one. <laughs> nah, probably not. I'm not fast enough. We should be getting Mitchell to give us the runways as well, man. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, no, What's no, the, no. Okay, this next one. YVR. Ross. Oh, oh far out. <laughs> what is it, Ross? You're going to say Mitch. Vancouver. That's correct. Yep. I Very think, popular Cathay route, that one. Bringing X triple eight. And for bonus point, is there a 0927 there? You don't get a bonus you point if you're going to clap point. back Mitch like that, bro. Uh-uh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. No one else buzz for the next one. All right. So Ross is on two. Christos is on one. So one more for Ross to win. Tom and Mitch. Get your votes in quick. Sorry, so this, this next ju- one. Is this just for them two or am I trying to... No, no, no. no, 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 no. It's, it's for everyone. Four. The next one is B... O-M Tom Tom What's What is it? Is it Mumbai? That is correct Oh well oh. Well done <laughs> I, I must get a point He must get a point <laughs> <laughs> I get a clock radio He cannot he afford Grand, Grand success, success. <laughs> Alright The next one P-V-G Tom Tom what is it? Shanghai That's yeah. correct No Pudong Tom on two points, Ross on two points, Christos <laughs> on one. one, and Mitch, mate. The two cr- oh, mate, I'm, the two, I'm Get quicker. The, the two no, I'm, I'm letting it go. This, oh. I'm in no rush. For the next one, M-C-O. Ross. Ross. Oh, it's Orlando. Easy. No. Yeah, that's correct. Is it? Yeah. And oh, Ross is one. Orlando. I'm thinking of F-C-O. I've been there as well. That's it. That's all I have for this one. There you go. Well done. <laughs> So who won it in the end? Ross. Ross. Well done. Yes. I'm going to easily forget this victory. So it doesn't We all are, don't worry. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, who won again? I will never forget it, and I can die a happy man now. Very good, guys. Uh, Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to wrap up by saying a big thank you to Mitch for joining us today on the podcast. You're most welcome. It's always good to hear from a professional's perspective on topics that are sensitive to the general public, especially when it comes to a fear of flying. So thank you very much, Mitch, for your valuable insight into what is an amazing topic. I do want to say a big thank you on behalf of everyone. Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. No, nah, look, all good, guys. I probably didn't provide too much sort of insight, um, but... Look, provided heaps. I think everyone should definitely feel at least a little bit more comfortable on their next journey. I'm going to say this, exiting the episode, I want to mention that I my aim is to get another friend of mine who's type rated on the 320 oh, as a first officer. yes. And I want to put you two head to head. Tee that one up. Because ASAP. he's got some real thoughts on the 737. Oh, I've got some real thoughts on the 320. <laughs> well, <there you> <laughs> 
I'm telling you, this is going to go off. Please don't do this to me. So again, a big thank you from all of us. Uh, thank you for listening at home as well. Really appreciate you guys tuning in to what has been a fun episode for us. Hope it's been fun for you guys. Enjoy the two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks' time on Monday for the next episode. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Take it guys. easy. Well done. Nice. See ya.